Celebration Rock. Critical conversations about music. Presented by 93X and Uprocks.com. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're doing a special Thanksgiving episode. And by that I mean we're going to be talking about uh, the greatest Thanksgiving rock and roll movie ever made, and that is Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. A movie I have seen many times and a movie that my guest today, Hanif Abdurkib, has also seen many times. And uh, we both love this movie not just because... It has one of the great casts for any rock concert ever. And again, we're talking about the band. We're talking about Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Muddy Waters, Joni Mitchell. The cast goes on and on. Van Morrison in the purple suit, looking spectacular, doing high kicks. But it's a movie, I think, about uh, you know, people coming together who don't really like each other very much who have a very dysfunctional relationship, and yet uh, they find a way on Thanksgiving uh, to, make it ha- to make it work, to have fun, uh, to celebrate. And is that not the story of Thanksgiving for most of us? <laughs> you know, we get together with loved ones, and we do love them, but, you know, we're not always sure if we like them. And we have to make it work. We have to uh, maybe drink a lot. <laughs> to make it through, just like the people in The Last Waltz do. There's a lot of drinking going on behind the scenes in this movie, as well as other things. Things with white powder and other strong substances. And maybe you do that at your house, too. I'm not here to judge. <laughs> you know, Maybe your Thanksgiving meal is like backstage at, at Winterland in 1976, uh, to which I say, you know, cool. Maybe I can come over sometime. That sounds like fun. So Hanif and I, we, we, we dug into the movie, dug into the minutia of it, talked about our favorite parts of the movie, our favorite trivia bits about the movie. And we talked about it in the context of Thanksgiving and, and why we love watching this movie at this time of the year. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for a Thanksgiving tradition, I think this is a good way to go. Like watch The Last Waltz every year. And we even suggest some drinking games that you can play while you're watching this movie at Thanksgiving, if you're watching it with your family or, or whoever you're spending Thanksgiving with. So I had a really good time digging into The Last Waltz with Hanif. We laughed, we cried, we had a good Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, so, but before we get to that, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and it is our old friend at Harry's. Now, if, if you know anything about me, and I always talk about this, and I feel weird talking about it, my hairiness, <laughs> the hair coming out of my face. I have a beard, but you know, you got to shave around the beard. You got to, you got to provide a frame for the beard. So you look semi-presentable. So I need to, I need a good supply of razors, uh, to, to make me looking okay. And I found that Harry's is the best way to go. And I'm confident that you're going to like them too. And so is Harry's. They're so confident in fact that you're going to love their blades that they're going to give you a free trial set when you sign up at harrys.com backslash rock. All you got to do is pay for shipping. Now, again, this is a special deal just for my listeners. Now, why do you want to try Harry's? Well, it's a great shave at a fair price, which is why over 3 million guys have, always switched, have already switched to Harry's. And you're going to find this out in this free trial set. Now, what do you get? Well, you're going to get an ergonomic razor handle. You're going to get five precision-engineered blades. You're going to get the rich lathering shave gel and, of course, the travel blade cover. Yes, I'm a big fan of the Travel Blade cover, and I think you will be too. So how do you get all this stuff again? Well, you go to harrys.com backslash rock. That's harrys.com backslash rock for your free trial offer from Harry's today. It's a $13 value, which you will get for free when you sign up. You just cover shipping. Again, harrys.com backslash rock to get your free trial set with shipping. Don't forget the shipping. You got to pay for the shipping. Okay. Uh, the last waltz, me and Hanif, we dug into it, all of it. Van Morrison, Neil Young, cocaine, all of the craziness that happened there, and all of the heartwarming Thanksgiving stuff that you're going to want to experience this holiday. So without further ado, here is me and Hanif Adurkib talking about The Last Waltz. 
So correct me if I'm wrong, but are you on the road uh, promoting your book right now? Um, off and on. I am right now. I'm in Columbus. So I'm, I'm home. Um, but I um, did a lot of stuff in October, um, and then I'm taking. Um, I'm doing some stuff. The book came out last week, so I'm, I'm doing some, some stuff last week, and I'm doing some stuff this week. Um, but then I'm taking like from Thanksgiving to January, kind of off. I'm uh, working on a tribe called Quest biography that I have to have uh, in. I uh, have to have part of that is by the end of December, so I'm going to take some time off and write. But then a real live book tour kicks off uh, at the start of January. So okay, you just like you just kind of like squeezed in another project you're doing while I was trying to introduce a plug for your current book. So it's like I cannot keep up with all the projects yeah. here. This is exciting, but you know, since uh, since I've made this segue, this very graceful segue, before we talk about the last waltz, can you just tell my listeners quick about your book and why they should buy it? Yeah, I um, my book is a book of essays called "They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us." Um, many of them are unpublished. A few are reworked um, versions of essays that folks may know from MTV News or the New York Times or Pitchfork or places where I've written before. Um, but there's a lot of new work in there. Um, they're essays largely about music, but I was really excited to write some sports essays um, in some kind of. Uh, a couple semi-political essays, um, but a lot of the work is grounded in music, so I'm very excited about that. And it's sort of like looking at culture through the lens of music, right? Kind of, you start right. talking about artists, but then it kind of goes out in a more broad sense from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I started reading the book. I've not finished it yet. It's really great. I love it. I have to say too that the cover is amazing. Yeah, I'm really excited about the cover. Um, Two Dollar Radio let me kind of take over the artistic direction on the cover and tell them what I wanted, uh, and they were super kind about about all of it. Can you describe it for people? It's like a wolf in a tracksuit, basically. Yeah. So what I what I did was I so I wanted to pay homage to um, '80s hip hop on this book cover um, for no real reason. It's just the, the era where I learned to love the music. I mean, I wasn't really alive for much of it. That's where my foundations are. Um, so I found this old picture of LL Cool J from, I believe, 1985 or 86. Um, this iconic photo of him. Um, perhaps from bad single cover. Um, he has a, a red Adidas track jacket on and a gigantic gold rope chain. Um, and I just kind of sent that, that photo to the publisher and then sent a picture of a wolf that we found kind of like merge these two together any way you can. Uh, and the result was really cool. You know, we got the, the wolf with the, the track suit and the gold chain on the cover. And I think that that's really one of my favorite, one of my favorite book covers I'll probably ever have. Yeah. I always feel like I, cause I have a book coming out next year and I went back and forth with my publisher about getting the cover right. And that was really important to me because I thought, well, if no one buys this book, I'm going to be the only one with this book on my shelf. So it, it, it needs to look cool to me, at least. Like, I want to be able to look at it in 10 years and be like, oh, well, the cover was cool. Like, I don't want to read this book ever again, but... The yeah, co- the cover is nice. Yeah, like, at least and it I looks awesome. Yeah, I think that's vital. And I think, I think covers can sell books or covers can generate interest in books. But more than that, um, you know, your cover should be kind of a, um, something that moves you as well. Um, because your name has to be on it, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it's a piece of art that you're attaching your name to, um, much like everything inside the book. So I think the covers is, you know, equal, equal and important. Yeah. And, and again, just to give the people an idea of, like, sort of the breadth of the book, I mean, I, there's, like, essays, like, on, like, you talk about Springsteen in here, Chance the Rapper, I think. Isn't there, like, an emo piece in there? Yeah, I mean, the biggest piece in the book is this... Um, it's like 8,000 word piece on fallout boy. Um, but there's also stuff like there's this piece about Ric Flair. Um, there's a piece about Alan Iverson, uh, and Michael Jordan. Um, there's a piece about Michael Jackson. And there's this photo of Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston kissing that I found that I really love and wanted to write about. So there's a long piece about that. Um, there's some, there's a lot of, there's a few like Ohio things. There's a piece about the band defiance Ohio, which is like a, a folk punk band from, from Columbus where I'm from. Um, though now they're kind of scattered and live everywhere and I don't think they're ever going to record an album again, but, um, there's a piece in there about them as well. And again, the book, what's the book called again for one more time for people? It's called.
called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, and it is available, I think, everywhere. Literally everywhere. I saw it in a, I saw it in an airport the other day. So <laughs> it's even in airports if you want to buy it before you get on a plane. That's always exciting. Like when, pe- when your book ends up in an airport, like people would send me photos of my first book in an airport, like in Amsterdam or something. I'm like, how the heck? Like, I've never been to Amsterdam, and like my book yeah. is there. Um, and you have this Tribe Called Quest book coming out, too, that you're going to be writing. That's awesome. So Yeah, I mean, that won't be out for a while. That won't be out until 2019. Okay. Um, but the, still, the deadlines are still looming, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, that's great. Okay, so we've, we've effectively plugged your stuff then. So we, we've got the plugging out of the way. That's a very important thing we need to do. <laughs> Let's talk about The Last Waltz. And now, the reason I wanted to have you on, and I'm just going to tell a quick story here. You know, I, last year was the 40th anniversary of The Last Waltz concert. And when the when it was coming up, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a piece about this, and I want to write about this movie as like a as a as a great Thanksgiving movie because I don't know if I've ever seen anyone write about it from this angle. It's like this could be an interesting way to approach it. So I was excited that I had my take, you know, and I was writing my piece. And then the day before my piece was going to go up, your piece went up on MTV oh, News, one, yeah. And part of me was like, God damn it, this piece is great. <laughs> And he got there first, you know, like that sort of like frustration. And then the other part of me was like felt um, uh, like validated because I was like, oh, someone else feels the same way. This is great. And, and right. again, your, your piece was awesome. I really loved it. And we, you know, we, we both wrote about The Last Waltz as like you know, a movie that you can watch at Thanksgiving and, and sort of appreciate the ritual of Thanksgiving uh, through the ritual of these musicians playing one last concert together, even though there's so many sort of like dysfunctional relationships going on. Um, we both wrote oh, about absolutely. that. We both wrote about that, but from you know pretty different angles. Um, and of course, I read your piece, so I so I know your history with it. But can you just talk a little bit about like how you came to this movie and how you ended up how it became a Thanksgiving tradition for you? Yeah, so I um, came to Last Waltz in college. I, I knew who the band was before then. Um, and I knew the film before then. I'd only maybe seen it in passing, but I, my, my first year of college or my second year of college, perhaps, um, you know, my, my family doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving. I was raised Muslim and, and, you know, we just, that holiday doesn't really resonate with me. And so, um, I was a, a handful of people who just stayed in the dorm during Thanksgiving. You know, there would be like one RA stays after and stays for the holidays and then a small, band of misfits uh, <laughs> stays, and I was among them. Uh, and it's usually, you know, kids who, like, either live too far away to go home or, like, don't want to see their families or, you know, whatever. Um, and That should have been a movie, yeah. like, with Seth Rogen, by the way. Like, like, like Thanksgiving yeah. dorm trip, you know, like, where it's <laughs> about the kids who can't go home for Thanksgiving and they, like, they have to spend a weekend together. Sort of like a breakfast club meets Thanksgiving yeah. type thing. That would have been a good movie. You know, that would have been a great movie. Anyway, I'm sorry, um, I, I interrupted you. Continue, please. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, on uh, the eve of Thanksgiving, um, we would get a bunch of food from whatever was open. Um, you know, usually like some terrible pizza place or just like a convenience store and like raid the, the chips and like bad frozen burritos. Um and we we watched we watched the last wall, and that was like a tradition. That became a tradition for me. So, um, you know, I did that for two years in a row in college, and then post college every year, the night before Thanksgiving, I, I watched the last wall. Um, usually alone these days, I don't really have people over to watch it. I because I think I get so obsessive about it. You know, I don't ever watch it um, in a linear fashion. Right. I kind of I don't I don't miss DVDs ever because um, you know there's no real use for DVDs, but I, I do miss the last Waltz DVD um, because it made it easier because the chapters were broken up by performance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you could kind of just like, instead of having to like fast forward on a, on a like, you know, on like a Netflix type of situation, because um, those chapters aren't as evenly spaced out. You're like, you're like, if you want to skip the Neil Diamond performance, as I always do, um, <laughs> right, of you course. like, you hit forward and then you just, you're like in the middle of the Neil Diamond performance. So if you have a DVD, you just skip that chapter and you're like back to safety. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Now I want to get to like, cause you said you watch it out of order. I'm curious to see what your order is here, but going back to your, your college experience here, like when you would watch it in college, I mean, did someone suggest that because 
the movie takes place on Thanksgiving, or or did this just happen to be a DVD that was laying around that kind of, you know, serendipitously got put in in the player and discovered that way? Oh, it was because of Thanksgiving, but I did not know uh, at the time that it took place on Thanksgiving. I knew nothing about it because I'd never seen. So before, when I when I'd seen it, I'd seen clips, and I'd only seen the big ones. You know, I'd seen the Neil Young, um, the Staple Singers. So I'd never seen the beginning of the film when the band comes out to do "Don't Do It" and Robbie Robertson gives the greeting of like "Happy Thanksgiving." Right. Um, so I'd never, I never knew that it was a film um, or a concert that took place on Thanksgiving. But because of that, yeah, the RA was like an older, cool music nerd. Um, so like he, of course, knew this and put it in because it was a Thanksgiving film. Yeah, I remember. Um, I think I first saw it on television. Um, and I don't remember like where exactly. I know that at some point that like VH1 or VH1 Classic would show The Last Waltz like every single day. So whether it was Thanksgiving or not, you could always watch it. So I kind of had a similar experience to you the first bunch of times I saw it where I just saw scenes here and there because I happened to be flipping through the TV and then, you know, there'd be Bob Dylan with like, you know, like the long haired and like, you know, where he looks like a, like a rabbi or something Uh, like that, you know, Bob Dylan or yeah, the Neil Young performance or of course the Van Morrison, you know, purple suit, the high kicking and all that stuff. Um, but also, if it's on, sometimes, or at least, I've only seen it on TV twice um, in my adulthood, like my post-college years. And sometimes TV cuts out the beginning. Like it, sometimes the TV will start at the like um, at the theme and cut out the like the Rick Danko like the cutthroat explanation. Oh yeah, and the don't do it part. So sometimes it'll just start at the theme from the last one, which is a crime. That's that's a. That's an argument against never watching anything on TV because that, and, and you write about this in your piece about how the movie begins at the end of the concert. It's the, the final encore that they play and they play a cover of uh, Marvin Gaye's Don't Do It and uh, they, they come out looking really kind of tired and haggard and like Robertson smoking a cigarette and he's like, you want one more? And they go and they play it and it's awesome and then, and then they're done and then the credits roll and the movie starts at the beginning again. Um, yeah. So that, that cover is so good. That cover is like so clean. Um, and so it's like when inside that I'm so, I just, I'm so excited about the last one. I'll like talk about it forever. Um, <laughs> but that cover in the context of the fact that that's the like 50th, 50th or 49th song they played that night to have them like roll out a cover that's that tight and that well done uh, is Spectacular. It's miraculous. Yeah, and and this is something that we both hit on in our pieces, but the fascinating thing about watching The Last Waltz is, you know, if you just come to it and you don't know anything about the movie, you know, it, it's really fun to watch. There's a lot of music legends in it, and there's some great performances in it, and you can just enjoy it on that level. But if you know anything about the band at that point and know about the acrimony that was going on and all the dysfunction and the drug abuse and how much they had come to despise each other at this point. And then you see the fact that they can put all that aside and perform the way that they do. It really does become, you know, tying it back to the Thanksgiving thing. It, it kind of feels like, oh, this is what it's like when you get together with your family. Like you can have a terrible relationship with your family, you know, but then you get back to Thanksgiving and it's kind of awkward and weird and maybe there's fighting going on, but uh, you still come together for this ritual every year and it ends up kind of working out in spite of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the most tender parts of the last waltz are, I mean, I, I think this goes without saying when they're, um, but I think the most tender parts happen not on the stage, right? When right. there are those clips of them telling stories about their, the old days. And there's kind of that, that, that moment where, uh, a lot of the, you know, frustration with each other and a lot of the bitterness is set aside um, just to reminisce. I think that's very, that's so familial in a way, um, you know, or, or, or there's something like very deep about that type of friendship where, uh, you know, I think there's tense, I have tense moments with friends right now, but if I saw them and was like, what about that time back in 05? You know what I mean? <laughs> we would be able to really hit a, hit a, 
a soft spot. And so I think the most tender parts of the last waltz are like when they're reminiscing on like stealing bread from the grocery in the large Canadian overcoats and like, um, and, and I think you get, you get a lot of good Levon too. Um, because I think he's, I think like because of the way, um, Robertson and Scorsese were kind of in cahoots and because of that whole thing, um, a lot of, it's easy to imagine Robbie Robertson as the star of the last waltz because he is just like so present. Um, <laughs> and his hair looks so spectacular. It's very, and his hair looked right. he looks very cool. He had the like, he had the like bronze, the guitar that was, um, that was too heavy. Have you ever read about that? How he like got his guitar bronze for the last waltz, but then he had to switch it out like, because <laughs> it was too heavy. And so like you see him. In the early moments, in the early songs, he's like playing and he's just like drenched in sweat. And he's just like, and I remember thinking when I first saw the movie, like, wow, Robbie Robertson's like working really, he's playing really hard. He's like covered in sweat. And then it turns out his guitar was just mad. It was like so heavy that he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't rock with it. But Levon has some of the best, I mean, because Levon is such a good storyteller, it just naturally. It's that organic Southern storyteller template that just works so well and so i think he is really um the star of the movie it just happens in smaller doses yeah and, and well and whenever he sings too it's so electric like uh, uh when they sing like up on cripple creek that i always love the part at the end like where he says like i sure i sure wish i could yodel and he does that little drum oh, roll yeah. and he like he just howls it and it's like and then he starts yodeling and just talking about it right now i got the chills just, just thinking about that scene. I start with up on Cripple Creek. I, my order is always like the third and the fourth. Like I start with up on Cripple Creek and then Shape I'm In, and then I go from there. Oh, I like bounce around, but because those two back to back are just so incredible. And Shape I'm In too is like one of the only. I think it's the only showcase for Richard Manuel in that movie. Like you really don't yeah. see. I mean that. Uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. Like, did you ever read Levon Helm's book, uh, This Wheels on Fire? Oh yeah, because he, he hated the last waltz and he hated Scorsese. He calls Scorsese the dummy, you know, because, yeah. and he resented and he resented Robbie Robertson for even initiating this project because he didn't want to. Levon didn't want to stop touring, of course. And um, Levon always argued that the that the pre-show, that the rehearsal, was better than the show. I don't know if you remember that, but like, cause, I do. Like Bill Graham, I guess, initiated this party before the concert, like where they had a big meal and, uh, uh, they, uh, and apparently that was really great. And Scorsese, Scorsese didn't shoot any of that. And Levon Helm was mad about that. And I guess too, like, like the muddy waters performance, like, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what was wrong there. I think like they, they had one camera going, like they almost didn't oh, shoot yeah. it. They almost it didn't was, sh- It was the camera angle. There was a problem with the camera angle. Or I think, um, or I think, because like they they were shooting on film, so they had to, you know, they had to stop and reload, and sometimes like give people a break. And I think originally they weren't even going to shoot the muddy waters thing; that that was going to be like, well, we can take a break during this. Um, yeah, because I think like Robert, because like another thing that Levon Helm alleges is that um, was that uh, Robbie Robertson didn't want to have Levon Helm in it, or that he was willing to cut. Um, I'm sorry, that he was willing to cut muddy waters. Uh, like, like he insisted on having Neil Diamond in the movie because he had just produced Neil Diamond's record. But like he was sort of like, well, if we have to cut Muddy Waters, then we we can cut him. And uh, Levon Helm was wild. Yeah. Which is so wild because Neil Diamond's part is the worst thing in the movie. <laughs> like I would, I, I yeah, I mean like the fact that you have to if you're watching it straight through that you you go from like. Um, I think it's like King Harvest, and then you have to endure Neil Young to get to, or Neil Diamond, I'm sorry. Um, to, that's, a, that's a great mistake. <laughs> you have to endure Neil Diamond um, to get to Joni Mitchell. Like, I don't know. And it's, I not, was, uh, and it's not even like a great Neil Diamond song. Like, if he had played Solitary no. Man or something, you'd be like, oh, okay. Because, you know, Diamond's got some hits, you know, but uh, he played the song Dry Your Eyes, I think it's called. Yeah, and, terrible, uh, <laughs> and it sounded terrible, it, and it, it, it not only it just was out of place. I think like totally, and it was out of place like the sequencing of it in the film. I think it, it shapes up a little better on the album because on the album it sits differently. It sits like it sits in like 
you know, there's like Shadows of Might and Furry Sings of Blues on the album and then Dry Your Eyes and then like Torilora kicks it back up with Van Morrison and then Caravan and then Acadian Driftwood. So it sits firmly in a sonic landscape that makes sense on the album. But in the movie, it's like really out of place. Right. Well, and, and then just as a community of musicians, you don't really think of Neil Diamond being in the same context as like, you know, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, uh, and, and Joni Mitchell, and then of course, you know, Muddy Waters. And uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I kind of appreciate Neil Diamond's wrongness in the movie. Like how you, like, you know, sometimes like you love a movie so much that like even like the bum parts, you kind of appreciate like, wow, this was so wrong that I can kind of appreciate it uh, on that level. But, but like, you know, in terms of like watching it the way that you watch it, kind of shooting around, you know, seeing performances, which is like, I've watched it that way too. Yeah. Like that's the least favorite one I want to see. I mean, even like some of like the lesser known people in the movie, like Ronnie Hawkins, like that's a great performance. It's like, I'm not, you know, they're playing, who do you love? And he's like such a colorful guy, you know, he takes the cowboy hat off and he's like waving in front of Robbie Robertson when he's playing the solo. Um, and like, Paul- and he has that great moment at the end where he kind of, um, in the, at least, yeah, in the, in the movie, he has that great moment at the end where he kind of steps back in the face, and the camera catches him like facing the band, and he's like very in awe. He's like, he's like a dad watching his children all grown up, <laughs> and then he like slowly slinks off stage. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great. And you, you feel like, okay, he deserves to be here early in the movie. Because, oh, yeah. Because it's part of the narrative of the band's story. It's like, okay, he was their first band leader. So you want him in there. Okay, we have more on The Last Waltz coming up here in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor, another sponsor for this week. It's our friends at Blue Apron. Now, Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the U.S. And while many people know what we do, many don't know what types of meals you eat when you cook with Blue Apron. You're not just having burgers for dinner. You're making short rib burgers with a hoppy cheddar sauce on a pretzel bun. You're preparing seared steaks and thyme pan sauce with mashed potatoes, green beans, and crispy shallots all in under 45 minutes and without a trip to the grocery store. I've had Blue Apron before. I've tried it. You know, I'm a guy. I have a family. we got to feed these kids in my house. And uh, it can be hard to do that when you uh, have a busy schedule. You're writing record reviews. You're doing podcasts. You're doing everything. Uh, So Blue Apron really comes in handy for those of us with busy lives. Now, for my listeners, I'm offering a special deal here. All you need to do is go to blueapron.com slash celebration. Again, that's blueapron.com slash celebration. You could check out this week's menu and you can get $30 off today off of your first order. Again, that is blueapron.com slash celebration and you can get $30 off your first order. So try it and have some tasty food. Those short rib burgers are very good. Okay, so let's get back uh, to my uh, conversation about The Last Waltz. So you said that you start with uh, Up on Cripple Creek as, as like your first song. Like, Where do you shoot after that? You said you go to The Shape I'm In, and then you go to yeah. like uh, It Makes No Difference after that? I don't know. If I, I tend to say It Makes No Difference. It Makes No Difference. That particular, that particular performance of It Makes No Difference is really brutal. Um, so I save it for the end because it's just like... Uh, like brutal in a good way. It's like emotionally. In a good way, yeah. yeah. It's just so emotionally draining to watch um, and to like take in, you know. Um, that solo at the end, the like saxophone solo. Um, so I, then I skip up really far to uh, Caravan, um, which it must be said, now when I watch it, I don't do this because it's so much harder. To, like I don't even have a DVD player. So, but when I watched it on DVD, I would skip around like this. Now it's so much harder to skip around that I just watch straight through. But when I did skip around, I would skip, I would go up to Caravan and then go back to Coyote um, and then do the, the, the Dr. John joint, the um, Session Night. Oh, yeah. Um, and then from Session Night, I would go start working backwards until I got the Who Do You Love. Um, but I would save the, like, I would save um, stuff like, um, like the uh, like helpless, I would watch that again at the end because I think you know I would save the heavier stuff. I would always save the version of the weight with those faithful singers um, until the end. Yeah, like that, uh, that that film performance that's sort of separate from the concert. Yeah, which I mean that's fine in the film because it is near the end. Yeah, uh, but that's such a great performance. That's such a beautiful, like perfect Mavis Staples 
Yeah, I mean, that performance is pretty much a Mavis Staples performance. Yeah, I remember watching that, I think, the last time I watched it, and I was like, yeah, I understand why Bob Dylan wanted to marry Mavis Staples, because, like, she was, like, still is, like, one of the most beautiful women uh, yeah. ever. And just her voice, just her spirit is, like, so great. Um, and I, I read somewhere, too, that she, like, had the hots for, for Robbie Robertson during that shoot, too, because he, I guess he looked so handsome during the shoot that she was, like, catching... She was checking out Robbie Robertson during the filming of that. Um, but, no way. Yeah. Other than, I wonder, there's that, my favorite thing uh, in maybe the whole film is that moment. There's this moment at the end of that um, performance where Mavis Staples whispers beautiful, like very quietly whispers beautiful um, as, the, as the music dies down. I now wonder if she means the song or if she's talking about Robbie Robertson's perfect hair. Yeah, I think so. I think she's talking about his hair. Yeah, you know, uh, going back to it makes no difference. I mean, like, for me, like, like if I was going to rank my favorite performances, I, I would say like Caravan has to be number one. That's just so great. Oh, yeah, Caravan's impossibly good. <laughs> Van Morrison in the suit. I mean, just um, it's one of those performances that I think that like if you came to the movie and you didn't know anything about any of these people in this movie, you'd be like, who is this guy in the, in the suit? Like who, like what's up with this guy, this out of shape guy. And then he starts singing and performing. And by the end of it, I don't know how you can't look at that and be like, this guy is the most amazing dude ever. <laughs> it's so much better. I mean, Caravan's a good song. Caravan on, on record is a good song. Like on, on moon dance, it sounds good. Yeah. Um, but like that version of Caravan is so much better than any version of Caravan. You know what I mean? Like, I was recently listening to Moondance and I uh, like just all the way through while working and it got to Caravan and I was like, man, this is cool, but like, why can't I just have the last Waltz version? <laughs> right, totally. And that's also true of, um, I think, probably my second favorite, which would be It Makes No Difference. Like, the, the version yeah. in The Last Waltz is so great. And you mentioned the saxophone solo and the way that that's shot by Scorsese where, you know, it's sort of like a side... It, my, my memory is a, of it is that Stanko in, like, the spotlight from the side, and then all of a sudden, Garth Hudson just, like, steps into the frame and is playing, like, on a little sax. Isn't it like yeah, a... It's a little like a, tiny sax. A little yeah. tiny saxophone. This, like you know, weird looking guy with a big bushy beard and a huge forehead who can play any instrument and make it sound beautiful. Like just how unlikely it is that Garth Hudson can pull this off. Cause like, I, 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 I didn't even know that he could play saxophone. I, well, I he can play everything. He right? can play everything. Yeah. Deal? That he can play like pretty much every instrument. I think, yeah, I think he's, yeah, he's just seems like a musical savant on that level. Um, but, you know, with Rick Danko, you know, singing that song, you know, you talked about Levon Helm being the star of The Last Waltz. Like, I, I know, like, the first bunch of times I saw the movie, like, Danko was the one I gravitated to, I think, even more than Levon Helm. Just because uh, of that performance, I thought I, I, thought I really loved how he sang that. Um, but then, you know, you mentioned, like, these between-song interviews that they have, and I always thought Danko was, oh, like, the, the moment, The moment in Shangri-La with... Uh well, that's Scorsese. Yeah, well, at the end, yeah, like you're talking about. There's a scene towards the end, like where uh, it's a really sad, beautiful scene. But like uh, Scorsese goes to visit D Danko in the in the studio Shangri-La, and he's asking like, "What are you up to?" And Danko's just like, you know, kind of smoking a cigarette or whatever, and he starts playing this song, "Sip the Wine," which is a beautiful song off of his first solo record. But even before that, like when they're just interviewing people, and it's not even so anything that he says. He's just always in the background smoking cigarettes, wearing cool suits and all that. I mean, I feel like there was a whole generation of like Americana musicians who have based their entire fashion sense on the band, what they're wearing in those interview sequences, like with the yeah. hats and the open shirts. And, Cause they just look like the coolest dudes uh, like ever that like <laughs> these, the coolest people that ever played that kind of music anyway. I mean, well, one thing, yeah, that is true. A bunch of bands did try to dress like the band in the last. I remember, like, when Panic at the Disco, it was weird, I'm Panic at the Disco and the band in the same sense, but when Panic at the Disco put out Pretty Odd, all those people were, like, comparing them to the Beatles, but their aesthetic was completely ripped off from Last Waltz era band. Um, <laughs> also, I mean, I think the band has 
a lot of tragic figures and a lot of, I mean, I think Richard and, and Rick specifically, but I think Rick Danko is like the, the great tragic figure of like both that film and just of the band's narrative. Um, you know, just like this supremely talented dude who, um, definitely died too young and kind of like just couldn't get it together. You know, like, um, it is solo stuff is so weighty and, and kind of sad. Um, you know, and it's just, I think about Rick Danko all the time. I think about that scene as Trent Shangri-La all the time. Um, because yeah, it's like, it's like beautiful, but it's also very sad, you know, and it's a part sad because we all know how he, how he perished and like how his later career kind of, um, was a struggle in points. Um, and he seems so happy, you know, like I, like hearing, hearing him, like he was so eager and so overjoyed to put on, sit the line for Scorsese and he looks so happy. Yeah. Um, when he's, yeah, Danko's a tragic figure. And he looks so handsome and, like, dashing and, like, you know, towards the end of his life, I mean, everyone gets older and this happens to all of us as we get older, but, you know, he was not in good shape. Uh, right. And he couldn't, and he had just that perfect, you know, that yearning, plaintive, like, high tenor voice, you know, and it, his voice started to go towards the end, which is sad. I mean, the other tragic story, too, of the band is, is, is Richard Manuel. And, oh, God, yeah. And, you know, and this is, I guess, a criticism of The Last Waltz. I mean, I think for a lot of people, The Last Waltz is the introduction that they get to the band. And in a way, you know, a lot of people probably never go beyond The Last Waltz. It's like, this is what the band was like. And I think the person that gets the short shrift from that is Richard Manuel because he's not in the movie very much. And if uh, once you dig into the band's history, you realize on the first couple of records that Manuel was as much of an important singer in that band as... Levon Helm was. Levon Helm was sort of the gritty kind of rock and roll guy and Manuel sang, you know, the ballads. Uh, yeah, he was know. like a soul singer. Told, and, like Ray Charles was like, like one of his big yeah. uh, uh, influences and he could sing really high, like the, the, the I Shall Be Released uh, version that they do on, uh, on uh, music from Big Pink is like kind of the example of that. Like he could just be this beautiful singer. Um, but I mean, Tears of Rage, he, he sings the first the first note on the first song on the first band album. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I want, um, I want Richard Mayo singing more than I want anyone singing. Um, and I love Levon Helm so much. And I think that like, you know, a band album that kind of gets, I think the, the short end of the critical stick is, is the album that had, um, that has makes a difference on it. I think, I think Northern Light Southern Cross is the third best band album after the two iconic, the first two. And why I think it's so good is because you get every, you get the, the three, the three kind of titanic vocalists of the band really trading blows there in a way that feels effective. You know, you get like, we want Helm on Forbidden Fruit and then, um, you get on a, a difference and you get Richard Manuel on like Rags and Bones, which is just, a perfect ender for that album. Yeah, totally. But I think in the band's legacy, he yeah he gets a, he gets a short end. And I mean, I understand why they did it the way they did. I mean, I think they were trying to protect him because he wasn't in very good shape. And I guess the thinking was that we can't put him on screen too much because it will embarrass him. Um, but I don't know. It's just a shame because you feel like oh, this guy just ends up being sort of like a background musician instead of the fifth part of the band. I mean, one of the great things about The Last Waltz is that um, even though, you know, you have those interview sequences, of course, but you mainly see them on stage. But you, even though Robertson dominates it, you do see enough of the other people to, to get a sense of, like, who they were as characters in the band and, like, what they brought to it. And uh, that's what makes it so compelling to watch. It's like, oh, you got Robertson. He's obviously the mouthpiece of the band, the, the dominant one. You know, he's shaking his head all the time and making guitar faces. Uh, kind of annoying, but also magnetic. You have Levon Helm, the, the sort of soul of the band. Uh, you have, you have uh, Danko, who's the vulnerable one. You have Garth Hudson, who the eccentric guy who kind of makes everything go, kind of holds it together. And then Manuel, he's sort of like the, the MIA guy. 
unfortunately. But I think with Helm, Mike was definitely the soul of the band or the guy that uh, uh, defined the band musically in a lot of ways. Yeah. Did, did Manuel... Did Manuel have straight stage fright? Is that a thing? Um, I don't think he did. I mean, the, the, that was uh, Robertson's deal, apparently. Like that's right. Wait. Robertson was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's so shy. <laughs> well, yeah, because like when they first, you know, because there was so much hype when um, the first record came out, music from Big Pink, it got such great press. And I don't know if they actually did like a real tour until the second album came out or it was like around yeah. that time. And they, yeah. they had, there's that story. I think they were playing at San Francisco and, uh, it was like a, a big, it was either their first gig as the band or like, or their first big gig. And Robertson just froze on stage and apparently they had to get like a hypnotist or something to like snap him out of it and get him out there. But yeah, apparently he originally had uh, stage fright. I mean, I mean, that's part of the band's story too, that, you know, they put out these two records at the, at the beginning of their career, which are like acknowledged masterpieces. And it set this bar of expectation for them that in a way kind of destroyed them. It seems like over the subsequent years, like they couldn't really ever live up to the myth that had been built for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then the last waltz comes around, and that's sort of like an, another myth <laughs> that got built uh, for the end of their career. I mean, like, what do you say to people? I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about some of the criticisms of the movie uh, that, you know, essentially that Robertson and Scorsese were friends, which makes it more tilted towards Robertson, at least in terms of, like, who's represented in the movie. And of course, Levon Helm didn't like the movie. He didn't like the idea that they were going to stop touring after this uh, film was made uh, or after this concert was performed. Um, for you, like, what do you think of those criticisms? Like, does that detract from your enjoyment of the movie at all? No. Well, the one that does maybe a little bit is, is Levon. I think it's because Levon's criticisms and Levon not liking it, because I do have a soft spot for Levon. One that was really renewed. Have you seen um, Aiming It For My Health, the, the documentary about yeah. essentially dying? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's like, that was brutal. Um you know, you don't, it's rare that you get a documentary that, I mean, this is kind of frankly and starkly about the end of someone's life. You know what I mean? Like, you just, we're like watching him deteriorate and also be brilliant through his deterioration, but still he's deteriorating. Um, and after I, I left that, I left the documentary and I remember thinking, gosh, like, his criticism of the last wall fit heavier with me now. Yeah. You know, um, because he's still so bitter, you know, in that documentary, he's still like kind of bitter about it. And you get the feeling that this is something that has hovered over his life for as long as he's been a, ever since it happened for decades, you know? Right. Um, and so I, I do take Levon's criticisms to heart a bit more and I struggle a little bit with them. Um, but it doesn't take away from, I think, how vital that movie is to me, not just as a musical film, but also as, um, a film that is unraveling the complications of love and friendship and family and partnership, you know, unraveling the messiness of relationships right. um, in a way that is really deft and beautiful and thoughtful. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as far as the criticisms impacting like how I feel about the movie, I, I echo what you say. I mean, I think in a way it strengthens those themes, you know, this idea of, uh, uh, you have people who love each other, but come to not be able to withstand each other's company and like how we have these rituals in place, uh, that bring those people together somewhat uneasily. And yet we find a way to make it happen. But just because you make it happen in the moment doesn't mean the next day those problems just magically disappear. You know, like in a way, this is like a snapshot of like, well, these guys had a lot of problems, but they were, they were able to make it work on this day. You know, and those and those and those problems continued the next day and for the next forty years, and we can't forget about that. But it doesn't mean that this moment doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that there's that there's not beauty uh, and power that exists uh, still uh, in that one moment that they were able to kind of make it happen again, one last time. Absolutely, yeah, and it's, it, there's an urgency to it, right? Um, and I know that you know this is more mythology building around it than maybe what actually what, but if there's an urgency that, uh, that I feel 
in the movie that they're giving all they have, you know what I mean, to on a, on a stage like no other for one last time, and it feels. Um, and there are some moments that aren't as good as others, but gosh, the the whole of that film, you know, the, some of the the iconic moments in that film, that Muddy Waters performance, that's just so like sparse and like really organic uh, feeling. It's just so stunning. Um, you know, the, the, the Joni Mitchell performance was just, just so beautiful in, in the songs that like, don't make it on the, the last love like album is also a real delight. Like, cause you get the songs that don't make it on the actual joint, actual film joint, which, um, mainly Acadian Driftwood, the performance of Acadian Driftwood, which like, with like the, the band and like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and, and like a couple other folks joined them on stage and it's just like a whole, like I think Dylan's on the stage with them. It's just a whole beautiful thing. And I think there's like a Dylan song too that's not in there because I think Dylan had a weird thing where, well, first of all, he wasn't sure up until like the last moment if he was going to do it for sure. Like he was totally being Bob Dylan at this point. Just, you know, uh, I mean, he had come, I think he had just come off of Rolling Thunder um, yeah. like, you know, a couple months earlier and he was just being difficult. And I think there was like a stipulation that they could only film three songs. Um, so there's like other songs, I think, that are on the album that yeah, like aren't in Hazel, the movie. Yeah, Hazel's on the album. Hazel is there, but it's not in the film. Right. Uh, uh, which is, I mean I, and I, and I mean, I love the performance that they do together, too. Like Dylan and the band. I mean, that's just really great, too. I mean, we haven't really even talked about that aspect of it. I mean, the whole movie kind of builds to that moment. Um and it, it's a great performance, but yeah, like when you also have Van Morrison and some of these other people, you know, that can even overshadow Bob Dylan and the band in some respects in that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but I love Bob Dylan, but yeah, he gets overshadowed a bit. Um, so yeah, I was trying to think of, you know, for people that have not watched this at Thanksgiving before, because like we're encouraging people to make this a Thanksgiving tradition in the same way, you know, people watch It's a Wonderful Life or, you know, at Christmas time or a Christmas story, you know, if you want to watch this, make this your Thanksgiving movie. I was trying to think of like Thanksgiving traditions that people could have with this movie. I mean, maybe they should do what you did and just go to like Walgreens and get a bunch of like, you know, whatever food is left and then make yeah. that your last waltz ritual. Like think, and, and like watch it with people you don't love but might want to or watch it with people... <laughs> you don't know but might want to or watch with people you know or that you loved once and don't know if you do anymore. Um, I think watching it with friends is great, but um, watching it with people you love dearly is great, but I think the spirit of the movie demands for it to be watched um, with tension in the room. I would, say, I would say too, like if I had to suggest a drinking game for The Last Waltz, I would say take a drink, Every time they show uh, Robbie Robertson pretending to sing into the microphone, yeah, he, they really, <laughs> and he really sold it, didn't he? Like the, Robbie was really selling the the like, I'm singing. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, Sam, you're not singing. Like we know you're not singing. Exactly, but there's a lot of scenes where he, you know, and, and sometimes he's just kind of lip syncing it, and he's he's not uh, singing into a mic, so he's not like. So don't drink during that. But like when they show no. him singing into a mic. Straining his voice, straining his <laughs> fake voice into a microphone. Take a drink. Um, like a vein, a vein popping out of his neck while he's <laughs> fake singing. And it's like Robbie, you know, you're in a band with like three of like the great rock singers of all time. So like I understand, you know, I mean you're not a great singer anyway, but like you're not going to compete with Levon Helm yeah. or Danko. And, just sit it out. Man, yeah, just, just sit, sit it, it out. Uh, but yeah, take a drink every time he does that. Um, although, you know, maybe cap it at 12 drinks or, or, or 10 drinks. Yeah, I don't want there to be a, uh, an alcohol yeah, poisoning be, situation here. It might be too many drinks. You'll be passed out by the <laughs> night they drove all Dixie down. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, it, it was great talking about this with you. I know because I, you love the movie as much as I do. I feel your enthusiasm. It, it's, it's so great talking to you about it. And again, one more time, can you tell people uh, where tell people about your book? What's it called? Oh yes, uh, my book is called "They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us." It is out now. Uh, it is available wherever you can buy a book, even in airports. So if you're in an airport yes. and you want something to read on a plane, buy my book. 
buy his book. It's great. He's a great writer. He wrote a great Last Waltz piece that came out before my piece, and he overshadowed it. <laughs> so I had him on the podcast. Hey, man, thanks again. It's uh, great always having you on. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on again. Hey, take care. Okay, that was it. That was our conversation about The Last Waltz, and I really do think you guys, if you're not already doing it, you should watch this movie this Thanksgiving and make it a tradition. It's a really fun thing to do every year. Um, and I had a great time talking with Hanif about it. And again, buy his book. It's great. He's a really great critic, really good writer. Um, and uh, I think you could tell from this conversation, he's just really good at digging down deep into a piece of work and figuring out what it all means. And, and that's what you got to do if, if you're going to be a cultural commentator. And he's really good at it. Um, guys, I just want to plug a couple of things quick. Uh, from Uproxx, uh, last week I wrote about the new Taylor Swift record, Reputation. And I think it's funny because no one reviewed that record. No one talked about that record at all. I was the only person to review it, which I don't know. I, th- I thought more people would write about it, but I was the only one. I have the only record review of Reputation. So if you want to read a review of a Taylor Swift record, you can go to uprocks.com because I wrote about it. And I also wrote about this movie Lady Bird that just came out. It's a movie directed by Greta Gerwig. And uh, the musical connection to that is that she uses uh, the song Crash Into Me by Dave Matthews Band in a really cool way in that movie. And that movie, it was an excuse for me to write about a pet peeve that I have, which is that people on TV shows and movies, their taste in music is way too cool. <laughs> you know, whether it's like the little girl on Big, Lo- on Big Little Lies or Jonathan on Stranger Things, you know, the guy who's like into the, uh, uh, the Clash and uh, the Smiths and all that, even though he lives like in the middle of Indiana in the early 80s. Uh, and like the, you know, and baby driver, like there's so many examples of this. So I wrote a little thing about that on uprocks.com, uh, that you guys should check out. Um, also want to give a shout out to Josh Copperman. He wrote our theme song. We did, de- we debuted it last week. It seems like people dig it. So thank you to him for that. And, uh, also want to give a shout out to my producer, Derek Madden. He's always holding on the fort for us here. Uh, he does a great job. So got to give him a shout out. Got to give him a shout out every week, Derek. You've been, you're sort of like an unsung hero of the show. So you're going to get credits every week now. Oh, thank you. And if I forget, you got to like say, your, you got to like shoot your name in there <laughs> okay. at the end. Guys, thanks again for listening. You are the most unsung heroes of our, of all our audience. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for talking about us, uh, leaving reviews on iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you again next week.